Chapter 1 of Joaquin the Cloud Duval of California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Stephen Carney, Fresno, February 10th, 2022. Joaquin the Cloud Duval of California, or The Marauder of the Mines. A Romance Founded on Truth by Henry L. Williams The sons are growing or grown up of the men who went it with a rush through the golden gates by the different ways over the Comanche-infested plains by the sickly shaggers and the isthmus innocent of railroad cars for the treacherous mongrels to scowl at in 50, 51, and 52 there are many of the brave hearts, stout frames, spite of fever of camp and field, keen eyes, hands ready for friend and against foe, generous pockets, and welcoming laugh left. Thanks to heaven of the returned Californians. They are the ones who will not have to be more than this once reminded who Joaquin Muriet was, that red-handed ravager, that king of cutthroats, that murderer of the mines, that pirate of the placers, that deepest cursed of greasers in Gullion Canyon, from Maximilian's north earnmost lines to the British territories, from the Rocky Mountains to the beautiful Pacific, the blood-scored adventures live yet, the celebrity is still well known for robbery and killing. England does pretty well with her Jonathan Wilds, Captain Bloods, cruel highwaymen, and captains of other crews. Italy is all very well with her Mazzaronis, Rinaldo Rinaldinis, and Frost Diavolo, whom the opera makes fall into a trap that a gosling depredator would have smelt out, a cub fox avoid, and a chicken have fought its way out of. And France may ring out its La Belle to good or bad purposes with the Cartouche, Mandrin, Scorche, and Freie, just as Germany can gutturally chant the doings of robbers of the Rhine, who plundered to banquet on swine's flesh, beer, Bologna's Limburger, with or without speck, Schweitzer, Kaiser, and all, no less merrily than more fastidious bandits on wines and capuan dainties. But, very high, ruddy, and glittering pile, it takes a land of gold to rake it. Joaquin is the implement in the croupier's hand. To begin, no one is to think El Dorado what it was from, 48 to 52. Not at all. The spirit never winced when Sacramento and St. Any name in the calendar were flooded and washed to nothing when Charlie the Chief couldn't save Frisco from the flames has converted the chaotic Eden into a proper paradise where everything man can desire grows to more than perfection from lovely and grand-hearted maid to luscious fruits. In the days of the fresh comes when many had broken bad English and worse French in chat with Captain Sutter, had broken savings, and hearts, maybe, 
over the Bella Union tables had broken the peace of dark senoritas who dropped coward native lovers for the fine large Americans who stood twenty lasso men with one six-shooter or a twelve-inch bowie Hilton blade. In those past times, not past times by a long shot, the man was liberal who called the shining shore a civilized country, and he would not be believed either. There were ugly crowds flocking there, and jailbirds, and those who ought to have been encaged, were plenty as wild prairie fowls in a Chicago market. Too many Italians who gave themselves out as broken-down water fountain stand keepers at Naples Florentine money changers reduced to the ranks of Lazaros by robberies on them, or Venetian gondoliers, were more than suspected of being beggars who had flourished daggers and flirted out pistols as spurs to charity. Frenchmen there, who were reported to have revolutionized a little, without other authority than their own, principally devoting themselves to securing funds for the cause, a cause which Jean Town and Amour de Marie, girls of cabarets, were concerned in. The Spaniards and such were merely ear-ringed sailors who had collided with first mates and had to hide from justice till the first vessel sailed with them in the hold as stowaways in such seaports as kept Gibbet standing, or were the hold as stowaways, or were fellows indisposed to clean Havana's and Mexico's streets in a chain gang as they were feared would come to pass. The English, when chummed together, might be overheard remembering in slang certain pocket-diving and crib-cracking feats, along with lushing in and about St. Luke's Whitechapel, Elephant and Castle, Golden Lane, King's Cross, and so on. The states as men hailed from the chief cities and did not recognize one another, but preferred strangers to mate off with instead of the acquaintances who accosted them so rudely and significantly on the wharf or plank walk. Hello, old Mississippi. War am de cards de allers turn jack. Your term out, Ned, or did you jump sing sing? The deuce, who'd a think Charleston would uh, give you up so quick? Gall darn ye. If tain't Baltimore who forgot his name, weren't Rob Smith and weren't unsigned to it to a promissory note, well, I'm to totally darned, and Sydney Skylarks floated over the Balboan waters somehow or other. And yet a number of these men, to counterbalance a number of the always accounted good, dropped what seemed a mask, though worn for years, and went to work with spiked pole, spade, pick, barrow, bowl, sieve, and cradle, as honest, industrious, and steady as best. Their reverse counterparts, losing their outfits and their money to live on in the saloons, though they were clergymen's sons, rich, of high station and all that, went down the stream after a Niagara fall. To this land of such strangely mingled people, came Joaquin Murrieta at the opening of 1848. He was born in Sonora's capital, in Mexico, of a family respectable enough and sufficiently well-off to give him a good education, as education went in the priest-ridden country. 
He was noticeable during his youth for the gentlest and most placid of natures. Everybody who knew him in those days, speaking rapturously of his then noble and generous spirit. In 45, being 16 years of age, Joaquin left his native place to seek his fortune in the capital of all the provinces, Mexico. As he was of good figure and not unpleasing bearing, he soon obtained the situation of squire in the wealthy household of President Lopez de Santa Ana. Mean as was his post, the young blade was told that it might be merely the first round of a ladder reaching to eminence, for he was ambitious and a little chafed. Santa Anna had always been a lover of horsemanship, a piece of information received gladly by Joaquin, who was somewhat noted in his parts as a vaquero, for he had tamed wild horses time and again, not to say accomplished wonderfully the lesser feats of tossing bulls on their backs, lassoing, picking up handkerchiefs from the dust at full gallop. He saw in the governor's passion a means of pointing out himself and doubtless of being promoted. His elevated hopes did not come to effect as easily as he had anticipated. He had to lower his pretensions a little, besides, on account of the way in which his fellow riders discountenanced his attempts to shine above them. One of these other horsemen was a Mexican named Camplido, who had often growled about the somewhat aristocratic airs which Joaquin had taken. The latter saw the enmity growing, but pretended at first not to notice the sneers and scornful looks with which he was liberally favored. He minded his own business instead of letting himself be troubled with other affairs, an act of good sense that seems unrivaled in a Mexican, so unrivaled that Completo did not imitate him. He made his padre pray for an opportunity to come to him. It came very soon. Joaquin was jumping on his horse one day, not in a stately regular mode according to rule, but after a savage style which he had caught from some Texan borderers, he lit fair and true in the saddle, but in half turning to make sure that the crupper had not been displaced by his fall, lightly as it had been made, saw a grin on Campleto's face and half heard him saying something to a couple of fellows beside him. Did you speak to me? cried Joaquin, turning pale and then red under his brown skin. Why, yes, replied Campleto, who, being a full-grown man, was not going to let the little Bantam hear him deny his crow. And if you want to know, Mr. Sonorian, what I said, it only was, Carajo, what a clumsy way to bestride an egg. Clumsy, echoed the other, holding in his mount. It's an American way which none of you inland cowards dare try with a wild mustang as I can. And he proudly smiled at remembrance of the days when the herds of wild horses had been corralled and tamed by himself and his friends, boy though he was. That's it. Speak well for the heathen Americans, the grasping, cowardly, lying race, cried Completo with all a Mexican's contempt for the people who had taken Texas and were afterwards to take more from the sick man of America. Heathens, no doubt, retorted Joaquin hotly. Grasping, eh? Yes, if you mean the Americans are men to grasp a friend's hand heartily and a foe's throat like a vice, cowardly, oh yes, 
Cowards generally do go trapping and hunting in the Indian territory. They do tackle Arapahoes seven to one. They do chase Comanches. They tend the Redskins a hundred and fifty and all Braves. They do rescue poor girls stolen from the missions out of Apache villages. That's the way of cowards, is it? They lied, do they? Of course. They said they would settle Texas, and they didn't, eh? They said they would have there a republic, and they hoisted no lone star on the tall cedar poles left standing in their clearings. Oh, no. Seems to me their piece of Mexico counts one in the Union's twenty-and-odd states. Anyhow, concluded the Sonorian, with flushed cheeks and working hands, I have not learnt bad horsemanship from such fearless riders, though they're not up to your mark, Senor Complido. Suppose you see if I am. I'm willing, said the Mexican furious, and I don't mind seeing if your little tender paws can handle the cuchillo of a man better than they do a bridle of a horse. But the others prevented the contest being for the present any other than one of the cavaliers. We must see the trial first, muttered one of the witnesses. Caspita, they can cut throats afterwards. On the appointed day, the whole household of the president got together with the secret hope of having a laugh over the foregone discomfiture of the young Sonorian. The two contestants opened performances with a couple of short runs, various tricks, rearings, prancings, and all the artificial steps of the manege. This was only to warm the blood of both horses and masters. Leaping over an adobe wall, six feet high and three thick, with a hundred feet for start, without a graze of a horse's hoof to tell the story, was the finale. Completa was first, and over he went to the cheers of his friends. Joaquin was smiling to himself, for he was thinking of how he had often taken greater jumps over huge fallen trees, wide splits in the ground from earthquakes, broken and dethroned boulders, clumps of cactus and thick hedges of the chaparral. He walked his horse on for fifty feet, and only began to gallop within the half the prescribed distance. As he neared the wall, ere he was within a yard of the holes in the earth made by the other jumper, he buried both his spurs in the steed's belly, and up it went in the air. At the moment, a white sun scarf tied to the end of an escopette's ramrod was floated in the uprising and oncoming leper's face. The beast started, swerved, and unable to prevent its spring, took the wall sideways, and, as a natural result, kicked a couple of the rude bricks before its feet. It all but fell, but the master had already slung one leg over its lowered head and dropped to the ground. Everybody was laughing, as he turned round indignantly, and Completo's throat was not the one that made the least noise. Suddenly he lifted the bescarfed rod, which he still held, to parry a knife thrust, which was dealt at him. It was Canales, one of the grooms. He had had the same trick served on him at his own first entering the service, and, though strongly suspecting the author, had never found it out beyond doubt. Now it was he who sprang upon laughing Capulito, but Joaquin, leaving his quivering horse with a sohoa to him, rushed forward in time to knock up a downstroke which would beyond doubt have made the traitor pay with his life for his act of baseness. Joaquin declared that he alone would spill blood in his own defense, and that must be, but as it was, he did not care to have one drop of such a miserable life current let out of so worthless a man. 
He mounted his horse slowly to give Complito a chance to show what little courage he might have, but there was no movement on the latter's part. Then, smiling scornfully, he leaped his horse quietly over the wall, clean this time, and rode out of the courtyard gate, never to enter it again. When he returned to his own country, he was determined to cast aside all his ambitious desires and live happily and placidly in the charming hot sunshine of Sonora. Nevertheless, in the month of January 1848, Joaquin did leave the province and went to San Francisco in quest of a brother of his named Carlos, who, since some time residing in Upper California, had obtained from one of the district governors a piece of land of four square leagues. Joaquin in vain made inquiries. He could not even gain any intelligence of him and had to return home. To make up for that supposed loss, he had not long been back than he married a young Sonorian girl, Carmela Felix. At the end of a year's wedded life, he received a letter from his brother, in which he was begged to hurry to the mission of San Jose. Carlos added that great quantities of gold had been discovered in the mountains, and that if Joaquin wanted to make a fortune, all he had to do was to lose no time in reaching the placers. Joaquin instantly got ready for the journey, but the illness of his father and other family matters delayed his setting out by some ten months. Then he started, accompanied by his wife. When he arrived at San Francisco, Joaquin was so immensely astounded at the change that had taken place since his former visit that he made up his mind to spend several days there to see how the newcomers would open their new life. So he sauntered around among the shanties and tents, and one or two patent take-to-pieces and put-together-again houses that were run up like cardboard palaces, watching the ships being unloaded slowly, for they were dreadfully short-handed, and the most monstrous wages for longshoremen were laughed at by the out-at-elbow-and-knee loungers even. On the second day, in one of the gambling saloons, already busy in fleecing the floor idlers who had made their pile even that early, and thought to risk a few ounces while waiting for a homeward-bound craft, Joaquin met his brother. The latter had the bad news to tell him that by some flaw in his title, some of the adventurers had taken away from him the four leagues of granted land. He was going to the mines to hunt up a witness of whom he had need, after which they too would go to Mexico in order to see the giver of the concession and recover the property, if that was possible at that stage of disorder. Joaquin expressed a great desire to go to the mines to see about the gold. Carlos was only too glad to have him along with him, but as he knew something of the roughness of the camp life where all were men, he counseled Joaquin to leave his wife at the Dolores Mission under guard of an old friend there, Manuel Sepulveda. The very next day the two brothers went up to Sacramento, where they bought horses to go to Hangtown. They found the witness that Carlos was after there. He was a young native Californian called Flores. He was fresh from a miners' camp some distance off, which he had left to come down to sell gold dust. After supper, at a Mexican eating house, Flores borrowed Joaquin's mule and went out for a stroll with Carlos. Joaquin, a little out of sorts from the journeying over roads so bad and the change of water, for liquor was so valuable that the creek supplied two-thirds of the contents of bottles of mezcal and aguardiente, stayed in a house smoking cigarettes, 
contemplating the grand invasion of Americans into this lately rich domain of Mexico. He had become acquainted with many of the northerners during the late war and, full of disgust at so often having seen the imbecility of his fellow countrymen, had preserved a most favorable impression of the American character, often regretting that he had not been born under the stars and stripes. He contrasted this lazy, cowardly, treacherous, lying countryman with the men of the Republic, so energetic, active, brave, and so filled with love of liberty. If it had not been for his little, happy, peaceful home, so picturesquely embosomed in one of the most charming vales of Sonora, which he little dreamed would ever become part of the Republic, he would have forever flung aside his nationality to become, in fact, what he was in heart, an American citizen. All of a sudden, Joaquin's reflections were broken into by wild yells from some hundreds of people who were thronging the streets, if you have a mind to call them that, and giving tongue and cries of, String him up! Hang him up! Hang him! Rope him quick, Pete! No Judge Lynch for the greasers caught in the act! Joaquin sprang out of the cabin, but only in time to behold two quivering bodies dangling, almost touching one another from the same bow of a tree. It was his brother and Flores, a couple of ragged rascals who had followed the two brothers from San Francisco with trumped-up receipts, had claimed the mules they had been riding and sworn that the animals had been stolen from them. Such was the fury of the mob, for, of course, where no law was except the unnoticed Mexican alcaldeses, which was too easily tampered with, justice had to be dealt by themselves, that the victims had no chance to clear themselves, and all their endeavors to put in a word of defense were drowned by the curses and groans of the crowd. They were pulled off their horses, a couple of long grazing halters found somewhere flung over their heads as they were made to stand on barrel heads. These scaffolds were kicked from under them, and thus they died. The two false accusers, bestriding the animals still warm in reins and saddle from the innocent and real owners, rode off as quickly as possible after trading the crowd at the nearest rum hole. Struck with horror and astonishment, Joaquin could do no more at first than cast one glance on the bodies and the dispersing executioners to assure himself that the sight was undesirably real. Then, bursting to tears and restraining himself from giving way to dangerous weakness, he procured a mule and returned to Sacramento on the way to San Francisco and thence to the mission where he embosomed himself of the awful story to his wife and made her shudder but with the eagerness of woman she conjured her husband not to follow the path vengeance streaked out to him with blood but to leave to heaven the punishment of the villains sure sooner or later to overtake them she assured him that all americans were not could not be as bloodthirsty as the assassins of her brother-in-law with all the strength of her sincerely loving heart, she besought him not to yield to criminal designs. Her tears, supplications, and words of affection and consolation worked a great change in Joaquin's intentions and lulled his heart into forgetfulness of the misdeed. So be it, he said, kissing her. I yield to my good angel. All is over. Let's forget and be happy. As soon as I shall have gathered a little gold, we will go home never to leave it more. 
A few days afterwards, accompanied by his wife, he reached the mines on the Stanislaus River, where he put up a cabin and began wet diggings. The district was extremely lively, agitated by a great number of wretches who, covering themselves with a cloak of being Americans, down on yellow bellies by God, worked only by fits and starts, patrolling the country and eyeing the native Californians and Mexicans who did throw off sluggishness and take to labor with a hateful eye, while regarding them as a conquered race, good only when others had the whip-hand of them. This scum did all they could to fan the flames of prejudice of color and the innate antipathy of such opposite races. One day a gang of such loafing desperados, having been thrashed soundly by an allied party of Americans and Englishmen, forming the united et pluribus dieu et mon unum droit mining company, and smarting to find somebody to be revenged on, came across solitary Joaquin and coolly ordered him to clear from his claim, as they had made up their mind never to let a man of his skin scrape gold in that region. As a show of his papers did no good, and his string of oaths bore harm, he told the shouting Ben Plum that he'd see every man a jack of em, at the bottom of a Nevadan ravine with a ten-foot sand drift covering them, before he'd let a spade or a pick that had no business there break earth on his ground. Weapons flashed out thereupon. There was a scuffle. The poor wife rushed out, handsome in her terror and grief, to behold her husband senseless on the ground from a hail of blows from pistol butts. The miscreants seized her. When Joaquin came to life at the dusk, Carmela was more than dead, dishonored. End of chapter 1